You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Okay, come on in and have a seat, and we'll get started with adult Sunday school class. And Jess is not able to be here today because he called me a couple hours ago and said that his his voice was almost gone and his throat was hurting him, and he's not able to make it today. So with my hour and a half, two hours notice, then you know what we get for this morning. That it, That is a question and answer session, so we're going to do a Q&A. So let's begin by prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this morning and commit our time and our attention to you. We pray that through all that is said here this morning and through the worship service that is to follow, that you would be honored. We pray that you would be glorified through our time and our study. And as we deal with various questions and and give answers, we pray that there would be clarity and the ability to communicate. Also, understanding of your word. We look to you for that uh, ability and we look to you for that grace. We pray for Jess that you would return him to health and and vitality quickly so that he is able to resume teaching and be able to resume the rest of his life as normal. And pray, God, that you would be with him today even and give him grace and comfort and help him to rest and uh, to be recovering. We thank you for your goodness to us that is evident in so many ways. And we commit our time here to you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, a couple people said they already had questions because they had been saving them up. And uh, so... Who was the first one? Dorothy had a question. Dorothy, what was what was your question? When James, when they use the word brethren in Scripture, and as in the book of James, where he uses it about 16 times, is it general? Is he talking to just anybody, or is he talking to believers? Uh, my my, without looking at each individual context, I guess the general answer to that question would be that the word brethren would apply to whatever the context indicates that it's applying to. And I'm trying to think of a specific instance, and I was thinking of, uh, yeah, Romans 9, verse 3, for instance. Paul says, he's talking about the nation of Israel, he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. Now, who's that speaking of? Speaking of the Jews, because right there in the context of the next phrase, he says, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So what does brethren refer to? It can refer to just specifically believers, my brothers and sisters in Christ. But there are instances in the New Testament, like here in Romans 9, verse 3, where brethren is used in a much broader sense, not even of believers, but actually of unbelievers, but his kinsmen according to the flesh. So, when the Bible authors use the term brethren, what does it refer to? Does it refer to Christians or to non-Christians? And the answer to that is that the context would determine whether it's believers or unbelievers. Whether it's believers or people that are your kinsmen according to the flesh. My fellow Jews, as Paul uses it in Romans 9. So, really almost every New Testament word is interpreted or dealt with in that way. The context always determines the meaning of the word. Because you can have a word that might mean different things in different contexts. We have that in English. It's difficult to come up with an English word that doesn't have more than one meaning. Can you think of one? Which one? There. Oh, a bear? Well, that's a homophone. A homophone. Homophone. 
homonym. There's a part of speech that's used to describe that. Bear and bear are actually two different words, but they sound the same. Okay? Um, how about a verb? Can you give me a verb? Give me a verb. An English verb. Pick one. Run. You can run down the street. You can run a copy. Your nose can run. But it means different things in every context, right? What's that? The machine runs. Your refrigerator runs. But when you say, my boy runs, and my refrigerator runs, you're not saying the same thing. You're using the same word, but you're meaning it in two different ways. So, in Greek, as with in English, you've got to let the context define the meaning of the word. And one of the one of the interpretive fallacies that a lot of teachers do is that they will look up a word in the Greek and they will say this word can mean this, 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 or this. Say five different potential meanings. And then they will grab any one of those five that suits their purpose and slam that into the text that they're talking about and come up with a meaning other than what the author intended. And that's, that's bad interpretation. Um, our English word trunk can mean a lot of different things. The trunk of a tree, the trunk of an elephant, a, a trunk of a car, the trunk you put your clothes in. Uh, what's that? Trunk of your body? Right. The trunk of utility line? So trunk has a lot of different meanings and we use it in different ways, but we let the context determine the meaning. I put my clothes in the trunk. Well, what, which trunk am I talking about? The, it could be the, the wooden trunk, right? Like the old trunks that they used to carry in the Navy and such. It could be that trunk. But then I say I put my clothes in the trunk of the car. All of a sudden we have a different meaning, right? Because I specify it and you let the context in which you use the word determine which meaning of the word trunk you're, you're intending. So it's the same thing with the word brethren. Yeah, eisegesis, and this is it's good that you brought this up. Some people, does everybody know what eisegesis means? It's different than exegesis. There's two words, exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis comes from the word, um, uh, the first part of that word is ex, as in exit. Ice means into, ex means out of. So when you open up a passage of Scripture, every week I exegete the passage of Scripture. That is, I tear it apart, not literally, but figuratively. I tear it apart, I look at the grammar and the syntax and the words, and I come to the meaning of the passage, but I'm drawing the meaning of the passage out of the text. Eisegesis is when you have a meaning over here, and you open up the text and you cram that meaning into the text rather than letting the text speak for itself and drawing the meaning out of. Exegesis is drawing the meaning out of the text because it's there in the text. Eisegesis is cramming some other foreign meaning into the text. And so that would be the same. Um, that would be Eisegesis would be what I described where you take whatever, whatever potential meaning there is to a word and cram it into that context. That's eisegesis. You're taking another meaning. You're taking something foreign and putting it into the text. You know, I've heard guys preach and then somebody will come up to them afterwards and say, man, that's amazing. I never saw that in the text before. That's probably because it was never in the text before. You put it in there before you ever pulled it out of the text. It's, well, it's, yeah, and it's just like, actually, I deal with that a little bit in the newsletter article that's coming out today. I think, I'm not sure if Marcia brought it with her or not, but that newsletter article deals with that conjuring with text of Scripture. You'll take a text of Scripture and do some hocus-pocus, and look what I came up with. And it's something totally foreign to what the original author ever intended. Uh, there was a second question. Debbie, are you ready? Did you have one? Yeah. The question is about the emergent church and how do you warn people or how do you deal with people to get them to see the dangers of it. For those of you who don't know what the emergent church is, it's a, it's a, a group that is growing not only in popularity but also in power and influence within evangelical Christianity. It is a wholesale 
adoption or an embracing of postmodernism, which is the view that there is no such thing as truth. Um, emergent authors would include men like Brian McLaren and Tony Jones and Rob Bell. Um, Rob Bell did the NUMA videos. That's becoming a big thing. Pastors are going to Mac, uh, Brian McLaren conferences, reading Brian McLaren's books. Donald Miller is another emergent author. There's a slug of them, and they're producing books. They're churning out books like just like crazy. Always there's constantly a new emergent book on the horizon. And the more and more of the emergents begin to define themselves, and they don't like to define themselves because they don't believe in labels. Don't label us as emergent. Don't label us as liberal. Don't label us as heretics or unchristian or anything like that. We don't like labels. They don't like leaders. They don't like authority. They don't like any sort of absolutes or any parameters or boxes. They don't like being put in a box. So it's very difficult to define them. Uh, And it's really left up for us to define emergent leaders as emergent. And the, the term emergent comes from the idea that Amongst the evangelical church today, there is an emerging group of Christians that are sort of coming up through the generational emerging, and they are called the emergent. Um, they use terms like emergent village with them. The words conversation and dialogue are really hip and in and new and cool and relevant. We've got to be relevant. And um, Doctrinally speaking, the emergent church doesn't like words like uh, trinity or atonement or orthodox or heresy or anything like that because those are labels. Those are categories, and you can't label doctrines, and you can't label categories, and we can't really know for sure anything about God. We, it's all just one big narrative in Scripture, and we ha- all have our own narratives, and everything's relative. Morals are relative. Doctrines are relative. So it's a, it's a horrible, horrible uh, departure from the evangelical faith. So the question then becomes, what can we do to warn people about the emergent church? And I think the easiest thing to do is to begin, to begin at least to get somewhat familiar with the authors and the concepts that are involved in it. I never recommend to people that you get too engrossed in error, but at least get somewhat familiar with what the emergent church is, who the leaders of the emergent church are, the type of books that they're producing and the videos that they're producing, and have an idea of what it constitutes. And then you can, if you want to go deeper, if you have somebody that you're trying to deal with who's into the emergent ease and the emergent movement, then go a little bit deeper. And it's not difficult to find Brian McLaren um, departing from the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, the doctrine that God knows everything, the absoluteness of truth, moral relativism, anything orthodox. I mean, you can just, you don't have to read even a chapter of emergent writing, and you're going to find some major departure from Orthodox Christianity. So, become somewhat familiar with it, I guess, and just try and tell people, look, this, have you looked into this? Do you understand that Brian McLaren denies the atonement? He denies that Jesus Christ died on a cross as a sacrifice and a payment for sins. He denies the sacrificial, substitutionary, vicarious, penal atonement of Jesus Christ. He says the idea that God would punish His Son for our sin is divine child abuse. That's His perspective on the atonement. That God would whip and beat His Son in place of somebody else is divine child abuse. That's not divine child abuse. It's called the atonement. It's the sacrifice and payment for sin. So, I mean, that is just a huge thing. And the doctrine of the Trinity falls victim to emergences, absolute truth, Scripture. The way they twist Scripture is just staggering. I read stuff and I just think, how in the world? Back to eisegesis, like Dave talked about. Uh, Thomas, you had a question. Or about that? It's horribly... Sorry. <laughs> yeah, the, the emergent church, the appeal of the emergent church movement is that it's very 
uh, geared toward the spirit of our age, which is um, tolerance and love and reaching out and embracing and hugging and loving and smooching and all of the good stuff that comes with us. And so it's very, it's very, um, it's very brotherly. And so they don't, they're not, you're not going to take a stand on an emergent church. They're not going to take a stand on homosexuality or abortion. Um, well, to give you an idea of where most of the emergent church leaders were at, they were arguing this whole last election cycle that Barack Obama was the pro-life candidate. That was the, that was the argument of the emergent church. So guys like Tony Jones and Donald Miller and Brian McLaren, Tony Campolo is an emergent. He's gone fully emergent. The youth specialties movement, um, Mike Iaconelli was, is an emergent. I mean, it is creeping into so much of modern day evangelicalism. It is, it's just, it's getting scary. The appeal of it is this, this brotherly love and this kindness and tolerance and all of that stuff. So it appeals to the zeitgeist, the spirit of our age, so to speak. But it's, uh, horribly dangerous. The stuff that is published or produced on a pop level, on a popular level, for consumption through books and tapes and the NUMA videos that Rob Bell does, those things are geared in such a way that probably the average Christian in the average church watching it would watch it and not have the discernment to be able to say, oh, hold on, hold on a second, that's not what that word means. And that's not, that's not true. It's subtle enough that this stuff gets fed and it's just a little bit of cyanide in the, in the bread, so to speak, and it's getting more and more and more and the more you're carried along with it, the less discerning you get because the more untaught you are. Anybody who looks at, and I'm convinced of this, anybody who looks at the teachings of Brian McLaren or Tony Jones or Rob Drell or Donald Miller or Doug Padgett, that's another one, Tony Campolo, and they analyze the teachings themselves on the orthodox issues of the Christian faith and they, and they understand and embrace what the emergent church teaches, I do not believe that they can be Christians. I believe you can be a Christian and be deceived into embracing and reading these guys. But if you understand what they're teaching and you embrace that, it's contrary to the once for all delivered to the saints faith. It's a different gospel. It's a different faith entirely. It's a different Jesus, different God, different Bible, different truth, different everything. It's not Christianity. It's packaged as Christianity, but it's not. I, I, I have no problem using the term heretic to describe to those guys. It is dangerous stuff. Uh, well, Linda had one over here. This Linda, go ahead. The Numa videos. No. Is Way of the Master emergent? No. No. Way of the Master. Listen to one week of Way of the Master radio, or what's now Wretched Radio, and you will see them take the emergent church to task. Like nobody's business. Well, I hope that they're listening to. Um, I ho- I'm, I'm glad to know that they're watching Way of the Master and listening to that, because that is as orthodox, rock solid doctrinally as you can get. Uh, same thing with Wretched Radio. It used to be Way of the Master Radio, and I think I sent out an email update about that. Um, the Wretched Radio website and the Wretched Radio tel- radio program. I tell you, what, I do not. This is this is. I swear to you, I do not miss an episode. Of wretched radio, because their theme is "I'm the wretch" that the song refers to. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So wretched, and the point of wretched radio is mankind is wretched and needs a savior, 
And we are wretched. We are wretches. It's the emphasis is on sin and the gospel of salvation from the sin. Wretched Radio, it's on Sirius Family Net. Um, and I don't, it's on, not on any local stations. I wish it were. I get it through, I get it online. And I have a subscription to the podcast, which is six bucks a month. But I'd go without five meals before I go without a day of way of the map. Wretched Radio. <clears throat> What's that? Yeah, it's the, the emergent church movement. I don't want to spend too much more time on this unless you guys have more questions about the emergent church. But it's, it's insidious in that it spreads like a cancer. It's under the surface. It's not seen. It's just it's taking over more and more. And I think one of these days the church is going to wake up and say, man, what in the world happened? Where, where have we, how did this get in the door? I hope eventually we wake up and that happens. So to answer your question, nothing wrong with Way of the Master Radio, Way of the Master, the evangelism course, um, or Wretched Radio. It used to be Way of the Master Radio, and then they changed it to Wretched Radio. There's nothing wrong with that at all. I hope that they listen to Way of the Master because they will find Todd Friel as the radio host. He is he is not sympathetic to the emergent church at all. <laughs> yeah, the question is, within Christianity, you have uh, the Christian church or within evangelicalism, numbers are dropping. Major denominations are dropping members and numbers. And other cults are picking up numbers. Um, also, within evangelicalism, I think you're beginning to see a shift. Um, and I'm reading more and more stories about this and seeing more and more statistics. You're, you're beginning to see a shift of people from the seeker-sensitive churches, the, the fluffy stuff, over to, and this is ironic, over to some of the uh, liturgical churches, the Lutheran churches and the Methodist churches and some of the more mainline, some of them more the staunch, the, the old-school Presbyterian churches and even Roman Catholicism. There's a lot of evangelicals that are leaving evangelicalism and becoming Roman Catholics, like Francis Beckwith, who was the president of the Evangelical Theological Society for a number of years, recently, within the last, it's been within the last, I mean, I'm going to say 16 months probably, Francis Beckwith announced he stepped down as president of the Evangelical Theological Society, and he went back to Roman Catholicism, where he had come from. And so you start asking these people, what, what is the cause of that? Is it because in churches we're not teaching deep, profound truths in theological ways and really getting into Scripture and and chewing it up and pulling it out, is it because of that? I think that that's part of it. But I think that also people are just getting sick of the, the silliness. The pastor standing up there in Hawaiian shirts and shorts and sandals and doing a series on vacationing. Or telling, giving sermons out of video clips and having motorcycles jump over their heads on stage while they're doing this. And all of the Hollywood production garbage, the trite that goes on. People are getting sick of the silliness and the absurdity of evangelicalism and they're saying I want something solid I want something that at least feels like it's a rock solid truth I'm tired of being tossed to and fro and bantered about and not having anything to hold on to and so they want something that's solid and Catholicism offers this offers them that tradition liturgy the sights the sounds the smells the everything that goes with it the feeling that man I'm in something and this is truth and it never changes and it's not silly it's it's somber it's deep it's reflective it's profound it's transcendent all of that, they want something like that because they're, they're tired of the, the sex sermons, the series on sex that pastors do. And the, well, it was Ed Young who did the, uh, the, the seven-day sex challenge. Did you hear about that? Major church down in, in um, Texas. Texas. And the pastor issued a seven-day sex challenge to everybody in the congregation. 
to all of the married couples, have sex seven days in a row. And don't miss a day. That was the challenge. He made it on CNN and the, uh, the, the Colbert's uh, Comedy Central channel and became a mockery. People are sick of the stilliness. And they want something that's profound. They want something that's deep and that offers them transcendent truth. And so anything, whether it's Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Catholicism, anything appeals to them when they're looking for something to hold on to that's not silly and, and whippy. I said whippy. That's a whole new word. Go ahead. Like Francis Beckwith. Francis Beckwith is, uh, yeah, I don't want to get off on him. He's a very profound thinker, one of the greatest philosophers and philosophical minds of our age. Very brilliant man. I wouldn't want to argue anything with that guy. And he could say that the sun was blue, and I would not argue with the guy at all because he would chew you up and spit you out. So I don't know why Francis Beckwith made that change, but there is a massive, that's just indicative of a massive swing within evangelicalism. And so what do these churches that are fluffy and whiffy, what do they have to do to attract people? Become more and more silly to get more and more people in the door to watch the silliness. And they call it church. And meanwhile, the solid people are either departing the Christian faith entirely or they're going to some of the liturgical churches. And I think that there's a massive number of people out there that are looking for a serious a serious study of issues and topics in theology because they're hungry for it. Yeah, that could be. I'd, the question was the Roman Catholic Church is seeking to unite. There has been for years an ecumenical push among Roman Catholics. And unfortunately, that ecumenical push is creeping up within evangelicalism. So you've got guys like J.I. Packer and Chuck Colson and some of these guys that are onto the evangelical and Catholics together, the ECT Accord. And they sign these documents, and they're trying to get evangelicals and Catholics together and pretend that the differences don't exist. And they do, and they're deep and profound differences. Thomas? Okay, yeah, that's a good one. The church, the, the, the question was talk about the Kootenai Thunder issue with the Catholic Church. We, our sports team that we have here, the Kootenai Thunder, which is a ministry to homeschool families and private schools and anybody else to get kids on our teams run by our coaches and our people here, ministered by us. And uh, we are part of the Mountain Christian League, which is an organization that goes through Spokane and Post Falls and Coeur d'Alene and Hayden and all the way up to us and Newport, Priest River. So it's a coalition of schools, the private schools and everything, they get together and then we play each other in volleyball, soccer, basketball. And recently there was, I got a letter from Tracy. She said this is the issue that's going to come up at the springboard meeting for the Mountain League Christian School. And it's a letter written by one of the athletic directors of another school who, when he played the Immaculate Conception School Academy in Spokane, which is a Catholic uh, private school, when they played them, the Catholics refused to sing the doxology with this other team because they said, we, we're not worshiping the same God and we can't worship with you or pretend to worship with you because we are the only true faith and you guys are not. We're fine to play basketball with you, but we're not going to worship with you. So the leader of this, the athletic director, wrote a letter to the Mountain Christian League said this needs to be brought up on the agenda because... We're either a coalition of Christians who are all together or we're not. But if they refuse to be part of us and refuse to have fellowship and worship with us, then this creates a schism within the group and it needs to be addressed. So I emailed Tracy back and I'm looking forward to this uh, board meeting, actually, because I get to go. And I'm, I'm going to go and I want to just sit back and listen because here's, here's my question that I want to ask them. Did you not see this coming? I mean, we've got to tip our hats to the Catholics. They understand the difference between Protestantism and Catholicism. 
and they are the ones standing by their guns and recognizing we have different faiths. We have different Gospels. The Catholics understand that. Why don't we as Protestants understand that? Have we heard of the Reformation? For 500 years we've known what the Gospel of Roman Catholicism is. This is no shock. Of course they have a different Gospel. Of course they have a different faith. Of course we're not brothers in the Lord. Why is it that Protestants pretend this to be the case? And Catholics understand there are deep and profound differences between Protestants and Catholics. I just don't get that. I just can't wait to ask them that question. Did this take anybody by surprise? I don't know how they got in the league. That's my second question. How did they get in the league? What was the discussion? What, what, I don't get that. It could be a new athletic director. It, it, that's it. But, but it's the father of the Immaculate Conception Academy. It's father of whatever his name is that is the one who's taken this stand. So, uh, I, I don't know. That's just a humorous aside. I'll, I'll listen until I can't be quiet anymore. Right. Yeah, and that's what I mean when I say they're evangelicals that are have been baptized into and force-fed this silliness are looking for some profound transcendent truth. Something where somebody can say, this is true. And it's been true for 2,000 years. And that's the assertion that the Catholics would make. Well, that gives somebody something to grab onto rather than this swinging, moving target that is modern-day evangelical doctrine. Um, there was somebody else that had a question? Yeah, Jeannie. Yeah, these are the, these are, this group in, thanks for pointing that out, in Spokane is sort of a very conservative group of Catholics. They are the one true faith and they would, they would differentiate themselves from other Catholics who are not part of the one true faith. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I read books is to save all of you the time. <laughs> the question was about the shack. William P. Young is the author. Sold over 5 million copies now, and you can go to Costco and see a whole table that's spread with the shack. And um, It is uh, in almost every evangelical bookstore that you walk into. The shack is the big thing. For those of you who don't know what the shack is, I've actually been meaning to put on the front page of our, um, our uh, website. If you want a good review of it, go to discerningreader.com or timchallies.com, and that's linked on the, front, on the front of our website. There's a little blurb up there about resources on the net, and it talks about Tim Chalice's The Discerning Reader website. He has a review that he did. It's about 15 pages long on the shack. It goes into the theology of the shack and all the errors in the shack and how they attack the church, attack the Trinity, attack the atonement, attack the person of Jesus, the incarnation, the fatherhood of God, and all of those things. And I got permission from Tim Chalice this last week, actually, to put his review on our website and to link to it so that people can just go quickly there and download it. Uh, the shack is a story about a man who loses his child through a tragic accident and he has all this bitterness and resentment and then finally he's let out into the wilderness. I'm just kind of going from memory because I haven't read the book. It's been a while. It's been almost a year since I've read the, the review of it. He goes out into the wilderness uh, or in, in the woods and finds a shack and there he meets with the Trinity. And God the Father, who is affectionately referred to as Papa in the book, is actually an Asian woman, if I remember right. African-American woman. The Holy Spirit is the Asian woman. And Jesus plays himself. Uh, Middle Eastern, middle-aged, middle-eastern man. And through this dialogue where 
this man's trying to come to grips with the pain and the resentment and why would God, why would a good God allow all these horrible things to happen through this dialogue that ensues between the members of the Trinity and this man. He comes to healing and reconciliation with God. But in the process of doing that, all of the wrong answers about dealing with life's pain are given and none of the right answers about dealing with life's pain are given. And in the meantime, the, the church is seen as the basically the focus of all kinds of evil things. The Trinity, of course, that's a, that's a modalistic view of the Trinity. It's not the, doc, the biblical view of the Trinity at all. And it attacks the fatherhood of God and the male nature that God reveals himself in. And it, uh, so the Trinity is attacked. The sufficiency and authority of Scripture is attacked. The clarity of Scripture is attacked. All of these things. It's very subtle because all this comes out in this conversation. But people are reading it, and a lot of undiscerning people are reading it, picking it up, and they're not, they're not seeing it. It's, oh, well, something's wrong here. Um, it just doesn't strike him as quite right, and it's not quite right. It's, it's a horrible, horrible book. So should I read The Shack? I would say if you've got nothing but time on your hands, you've got nothing else to do, and the winter is just setting in, and you are really bored, and you've read every other good book in the world, then pick up The Shack and read it, and uh, pick out all the errors in it. But know beforehand going into it that you are not dealing with a Christian book, you're not dealing with a Christian view of Scripture, a Christian view of Jesus, a Christian view of the Trinity, or a Christian view of the problem of suffering and evil in our world. Doug? Yeah, that's a good question. If there's a massive exodus, should we turn the mirror back on ourselves? And I think that that's a legitimate question. I think that the answer to that is yes. I think that the most fundamental problem with modern-day evangelicalism is the shallowness of the teaching from the pulpit. And I, I make no bones about indicting any peer, all of my peers, any pastor, preacher, or teacher who does not spend their week studying the Scripture and try and serve up on Sunday mornings a feast of truth that is profound and real and solid and shows the energy and effort that goes into preaching. It is shallow teaching as it is to blame. And we have been feeding people shallow teaching since the 1950s in this country and now we see people that have no discernment. They're not raised in the church. Um, they're not raised in a church that takes doctrine seriously or teaches them anything profound or true. Sit in on, and I say this to Dave Rich's credit, sit in on the average youth meeting of the 20, 25 kids that get together for our youth group. Sit in and listen to the depth week after week that Dave is teaching those kids. It is, It just melts my heart to see it. I love sitting in and watching that because I didn't have that as a teenager. I didn't have that type of depth. The outline that Dave gave this last Wednesday night to them was an outline on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament with all the appropriate verses and who the Holy Spirit is and the attributes of the Holy Spirit from the New Testament, all the things that the Holy Spirit does pre-Pentecost and post-Pentecost and all that. It was a theological outline that came out of a systematic theology text. That was what they went through in youth group. So what is our commitment as a church is to dig as deep as we can and teach as strong as we can and as passionately as we can and cover all of the deep, profound things that anchor people in the faith and keep that from happening. But I think a lot of it is just the silliness that's crept into evangelicalism. People don't take anything seriously. There's no such thing as truth. And don't offend people. And don't teach them dumb, uh, deep things because everybody else is so stupid but the pastor and they can't handle profound and deep things. We don't believe that here. So I think evangelicalism is to blame because we have become so soft and silly in adopting the spirit of our age that we have laid the groundwork for people to be able to pick up the shack and read through it and not be able to discern anything wrong with it. So we, we can be able to offer to people um, profound truths and hurt for the, or healing for their hurts with an arm around them in love without compromising any of these things. But the shack doesn't do that. 
I think we can. We can sit down and tell somebody, look, you can trust God in the midst of this because God is sovereign and by His providence He has allowed this and this is for your good. And you can teach them all of the profound and wonderful things about God and His character and His plan in love with an arm around them trying to protect them from things like the shack which tries to give them some other way of dealing with pain other than understanding the truths of Scripture. Does that make sense? Dorothy? Yeah, it does lower God down to man's level. And um, Carol, do you have something? Story to tell. Go ahead. Do you have a different question? Oh, okay. To go back to the mention of a Way of the Master Radio or Way of the Master, Todd Friel, the host of that wretched radio program that I listened to, he was telling a story just within the last couple of weeks, actually, about walking into a Starbucks and seeing two ladies sitting there. One was a sort of a New Ager lady, and another one was an unconverted Jewish lady, and they were both reading The Shack in Starbucks. So he stopped to talk with them and engaged them in this conversation. And the one unconverted Jewish lady said to him, this presents a disgusting view of God. He is small, he is weak, and he is insipid. And I think you Christians should be offended by how this presents your God. This was an unconverted Jewish woman who said you Christians should be offended by what this says about your God. But you know what? Christians aren't. Why is that? The pagans get it. He said, Todd Friel said, if you pick up the shack and read page 100, and if you can't read page 100 and be disgusted by the perspective of God that's given on page 100, I think it's 99 or page 100, read both of them, then, I don't know, there's just no hope, hope for you. So, Carol, question? Can I explain what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Um, boy, not in the amount of seconds I got left. Okay, uh, let me go over, let me go over basically a quick, and I can't turn to the passage and, and kind of work through it with you, but let me go over quickly what the blasphemy of the Spirit is. The blasphemy of the Spirit is, I believe, is a historical event, and what you had going on was you had Pharisees who were standing in the presence of the Son of God. They knew Him to be the Son of God because He had worked miracles among them, and they knew Him to be, um, exactly who Jesus was claiming to be. They had seen the proof of His messianicness and His divinity. And in the face of the miracles that he did, they said to him, you perform these miracles in the power of Beelzebub. And Jesus said, every sin can be forgiven man except for the blasphemy of the Spirit. So what had they done? What specifically had they done? They had attributed the miracles not to the power of God, but to the power of Satan. In other words, they took something that the Spirit was doing and they were calling the Spirit of God Satan and saying, you do this not by the power of God, but by the power of Satan. So it is, a, it is, I believe, something that really we cannot duplicate here in our day at all. We can do something similar to that in denying Jesus or in um, blaspheming God. But this is, a, this is a very unique historical situation where Jesus said, okay, now, now you've gone too far. There's a lot of things you can be forgiven of. But once you get to the point where you say, that you do by the power of Satan when you know it is God and you have attributed it to Satan. That's a knowing rebellion and that is a blasphemy of such a nature that there's no turning back from that. You're not going to be forgiven for that. So in short, that's what it is. So is it possible for us to blaspheme the Spirit today? I think the closest thing that we can come to blaspheme the Spirit today is to be confronted with truth and to know the truth and to see it right as it is and to turn away from it and attribute it all as heresy and error. I think that's about the closest thing we can do. But we can never duplicate that because we don't have Jesus here amongst us performing signs with messianic claims. 
that make sense? So is it possible for us to blaspheme the Spirit? Not in the same way that they did. But we can come dangerously close to the same thing when we reject truth knowing that it's true. And Christians can't do this. It's not something that Christians can do. That's the next question. No, it's not something that a Christian can do. A Christian can never, um, never call Jesus a curse. A Christian can never do that. A Christian would never do that. We may rebel against truth or kick against truth or not like truth, but in the end, we can never do what those Pharisees did. Okay? Was that as fun for you as it was for me? Okay. Oh, on emergent church thing, there is a... I did a Sunday school on the Emergent Church here where we spent about 50 minutes or so discussing who the leaders of the Emergent Church are and what they teach and what that is. That's available on our website. It's always up there because it's kind of a thing that's always pressing so it never gets taken down. And, and it's called, uh, I think it's called Becoming Emergent, Becoming Conversant with the Emergent Church or something like that. It's on, uh, it's under the messages that I preach and it's under special search around. You'll find it. It's on there. It never goes down. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had, and we ask, God, that you would watch over us and protect us. We thank you for the flock that you have entrusted here at Kootenai, and we pray that you would guard us from wolves and guard us from false doctrine. Give us hearts that are are bent toward your word and love your word, and we pray that through all that we have discussed that it would serve to warn us where appropriate and encourage us, and that you would guard us against false doctrine and error, that we might honor you through truth and through loving truth. We thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.